0: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each
1: day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're now on a roll in our revived series, Oh, That First Means That. Today's session will be Part 37. The original series was aired in 2022 from January to September and comprised 31 programs. But in May of this year, 2023, back by popular demand, we're continuing to be Detectives of the Divine. To check out the original 31 archived sessions or catch up to the new recent sessions, just go to faithtalk1360.com and search under local program podcasts. Well, friends, we'll need our Detectives cap on our spiritual magnifying glass in hand, and our first-century sandals strapped on our feet. So we protect ourselves from cavalierly and authoritatively barking out what we think a Bible verse means. We should desire to do the Scriptures justice at all costs, shouldn't we, friends? And in the process, shouldn't we be respecting the Holy Spirit, the author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, per Second Peter 1, 20 and 21? Friends, it bothers me that up till now we've earmarked 36 Bible verses that have commonly been misunderstood, mischaracterized, misinterpreted, and therefore misapplied. It's time we faithfully and carefully scrutinize Bible passages we've believed meant one thing, yet we're discovering they actually mean something quite different. And friends, let me just say that I take no pleasure in shining our spiritual searchlight on or get any glee from critically re-examining these texts that have been defectively presented by some of us preachers, teachers, and pastors. And you know why? Because the Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? It's crying out. Actually, it's screaming out to tell us its story. But what are we pastors, teachers, and preachers and even average Christians tend to do. We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. So I say, shame on us. Well, friends, there I launch my own assault against one of the best-known verses in Romans and probably one of the best-known verses in the whole Bible aiming my spiritual searchlight at a chapter that might be the best-known and most comforting chapter in the whole Bible, or a verse that's one of the most often quoted verses in Scripture, a verse that's one of the most beloved verses in the Bible, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible, a verse that's arguably the most sought-after verse in the Bible for comfort in times of distress one of the most memorized and quoted verses in the New Testament. One teacher actually calls it the most misinterpreted verse about faith in the Bible. So what text of scripture could I be talking about? Well, our scripture under scrutiny in today's session is the famous and beloved Romans 8.28. And friends, although it may be one of the most often quoted Bible verses, sadly it happens to be all too easily quoted without truly knowing it. I'm calling today's session, Do All Things Really Work Together for Good? Now please notice there's a subtle shift in my title from what Romans 8.28 actually says. Our English translations vary slightly depending on some slight differences in the word order in some of the original manuscripts. This doesn't cast any doubt on the manuscripts. It merely offers two possible options in how we can read the verse. And it's safe to say that the fundamental meaning is not in jeopardy either because the context assists us in settling on the meaning. Here's a few good English translations that will reflect the two options we have in the word order. The King James version and the New King James are virtually the same so the new king james says and we know that all things work together for good to those who love god to those who are called according to his purpose the esv has and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose a footnote in the esv alerts us to two alternatives God works all things together for good, or God works in all things for the good. All three updates of the New American Standard Bible read, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And a marginal note in the New American Standard Bible informs us that one early manuscript reads, And we know that all things work together for good. The NIV has in the text, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, and in a marginal note adds these optional readings, that all things work together for good to those who love God, or that in all things God works together with those who love God to bring about what is good. Now, friends, periodically you hear me say that it's not only helpful to know what the text is teaching, but it's also helpful and enlightening to know what the text is not teaching. The New Testament Greek text does not say all things work together for good. Period, and our text also does not indicate that this is a universal promise for every human being and I'll pause here for just a moment because in romans eight seventeen through thirty nine the context demands we recognize that Paul is talking about suffering, in other words, the many possibilities for us Christians to experience suffering in this life, either generally or as a direct result of being a Christ follower in verse eighteen, Paul says i consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us friends did you catch that paul's contrast here He's contrasting his and others' present suffering with a future glory that is yet to be revealed. In other words, a present condition compared to a future release from this present condition. In verse 26, he mentions weaknesses, which I propose are directly related to his suffering. At times we're baffled at or by the things that have come upon us that cause us to suffer. It's here in these baffling times that the Holy Spirit comes to our aid, comes alongside us, if you will, to pray and intercede for us. Paul reiterates this at the end of verse 27, indicating that the role of the Holy Spirit is to help us discern or discover God's will during these baffling times. And it's here, friends, where our verse under scrutiny appears, verse 28. So the context we've just elaborated on is crucial for divining Paul's all things. We can't just arbitrarily make Paul's all things of Romans 8:28 any all things of our own choosing and here is where observing the text becomes critical notice the text does not say that all things are good in the human realm we must admit that bad or unpleasant things do happen to christians when we become born again, we're not automatically placed in a protective bubble, immune to the sufferings inherent in a fallen world, a fallen world where even the created order has been made subject to suffering and pain, as Paul elaborates on in Romans eight twenty two through twenty five. And friends, I chose our text under scrutiny for today's session, since there's a parallel to our last session on Philippians 4.13, because the immediate context of both verses is suffering. And additionally, Paul's all things in Philippians 4.13 is the same term he uses here in Romans 8.28, a term that at its heart fundamentally carries the idea of all, or every, that's connected to a whole. In other words, all, each, or every part in relation to a total package. And it's no wonder, friends, that the immediate context of Philippians 4.13 is identical to Romans 8.28. The total package is the suffering experienced by Christ followers in a variety of earthly situations. Let me just stick my two cents in here, friends, because when we misread or misinterpret particular Bible verses that at their heart tie in with suffering, and we make them say or relate to something entirely different, we've just stolen these verses away from our brothers and sisters in Christ that need to hear these comforting promises to help them persevere when they're going through tough times. So, friends, getting back to where I left off earlier, that Romans eight twenty eight does not say that all things are good, or even work together for good, but rather that God causes, or God makes all these things we go through work together for our ultimate good. And I'll get to defining what Paul means by good, because this is a crucial aspect of interpreting and then applying this text properly. But first I want us to see that an integral part of Romans 8.28 is the phrase, all things work together for the good. You see, friends, this little phrase, work together, ensures that we don't isolate particular events or experiences in our lives as Christ followers, but rather take into account the sum total of all events. Here we must be able to differentiate between saying each thing by itself is good versus saying all things work together for good. There's a tremendous difference here, friends. Romans 8.28 is not forcing me to say that it's good that I broke my my leg or it's good that my house burned down or it's good that i got beaten and robbed or it's good that my child died but i contend that romans eight twenty eight is screaming out to tell us that the god of the bible is sovereign and trustworthy and that we've entered into a relationship with an all-knowing and all-controlling god Friends, you may recall that our last session, where we scrutinized Philippians 4.13, the secret Paul learned in verses 11 through 13 required a shift in focus, whereas we tend to direct our energies toward changing the aspects of our lives that cause us discontentment rather than seeking our loving Heavenly Father, who's allowed both positive and negative circumstances to come into our lives. I even alluded to today's text, Romans 8.28, and asked, Do we trust that the all things of Romans 8.28 will sovereignly and miraculously turn out for our ultimate good, and at the same time bring glory to God? Like Philippians 4.13, doesn't Romans 8.28 also require a shift in focus? Romans 8.28 adds a bonus to Philippians 4.13 in that it teaches us that God will use these events and weave them together with every other facet of our lives in order to produce what he knows to be the very best or good for us. And friends, here's a good place to insert Paul's definition of good in Romans 8.28 because without the context, we arbitrarily and wrongly take the liberty to define good for ourselves. And to this I say, shame on us. Friends, I propose that the good that Paul is referring to is actually a reflection of what God's goal is for us as Christ followers. And Paul reveals this to us in verse 29. Were those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Whoa! This is not a novel idea. Paul just brings up here, friends, that our lives lived out here on earth are to grow in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-nine. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Christ And 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And finally, Colossians 3, 8 through 10 But now you yourselves are put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man, with his deeds and have put on the new man who is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator friend the apostle paul was not blind to suffering when he wrote these words in romans 8:28 neither is god blind to suffering in fact as far back as exodus chapters 2 and 3 we see a god whose eyes are wide open to the suffering of his people in exodus 2:23 and through 25 we read the king of egypt died The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Then in chapter 3, 7 through 9, we read, The Lord, Yahweh, said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good land and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Friends, if these passages tell us anything, they tell us that our God, the God of the Bible, cares about us and knows exactly what we're going through, knows how we are suffering. That good land that God planned to bring the Israelites into, the land flowing with milk and honey, was not a land immune from challenges, immune from conflicts, immune from adversities. But our all-knowing and all-controlling God uses all our challenges, all our conflicts, and all our adversities to conform us to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples Christians without a church home, plus you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at A Word from the Word. minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Friends, when it comes to suffering, it's natural to respond to the sometimes asphyxiating nature of our sufferings and have difficulty looking beyond the present or the immediate to the future, the future glory that awaits us. But this is precisely what God wants us to do. Despite our trials, sufferings, and even persecutions, God wants us to rely on His strength and hold on and trust Him. Earthly security is an illusion and futile. A few chapters earlier, Romans 5, Paul writes, tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. In Romans 8:15, I'm sorry, Romans 8:18, 8, just 10 verses before our verse under scrutiny, Paul reminds us that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, our future glory. Friends, notice how Paul subtly pairs, present sufferings with future glory. You see, friends, God is always thinking about the end result. God always has the big picture in mind, whereas we tend to think about the now. We tend to have the little picture in mind, the little picture of our immediate circumstances. For God, our sufferings actually produce something. They develop character and prepare us for the coming kingdom of God. When Jesus arrived on the scene in the first century, Greco roman world the first words out of his mouth that signaled his mission were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand jesus himself represented the kingdom of god a topsy-turvy kingdom an upside down kingdom a value swapping kingdom up is now down down is now up friends, are we living this way in the here and now? Is the coming kingdom with its exchanged or reversed value system evident in the way we live? Do our present sufferings communicate to others that we're citizens of another kingdom, a different kingdom, and that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us? I sometimes wonder... Well-loved author Randy Alcorn shares a true event from his childhood. His mother baked delicious cakes, but before she made a cake, she always laid out each of the ingredients on the kitchen counter. One day, Randy decided to try an experiment. One by one, he tasted each of the individual ingredients that would make up the chocolate cake his mother was making. He thought about this. I've never tasted baking powder or baking soda. The flour was horribly bland, and he refused to describe the taste of a raw egg. Even the semi-sweet chocolate was terribly bitter compared to the sweet milk chocolate he was used to eating. Well, he summed it all up this way. Everything that goes into a cake tastes terrible by itself. But the striking thing was that when his mother mixed all these ingredients together in the right amounts placed it in the oven and then laid it out to cool an amazing metamorphosis took place the cake was delicious while the individual ingredients tasted terrible the final product tasted terrific he had judged the whole cake on the basis of the individual ingredients then he never would have believed the cake could be good friends do we see the analogy here to romans 8:28? Using baking terminology, the individual ingredients of trials and adversities and apparent tragedies that come into our lives are neither delicious nor desirable. In fact, at first taste, they are often very bland, even bitter. But God perhaps we'll call him the master baker, is capable of carefully measuring out and mixing up these ingredients in order to produce a final product that is truly good. And God doesn't ask us to immediately see every individual event as wonderful, but he does ask us to trust that he is sovereignly at work in this event, that event, and uses them in concert with everything else for our ultimate good. So, friends, let me reiterate something I said earlier. Our focus needs to be shifted, doesn't it? And I'll add, our emphasis needs to be reversed, doesn't it? Friends, we'll never properly understand and apply Romans 8.28 as long as we put God at the end and not at the beginning. For example, some people view life this way. After a tragedy, God shows up to make everything come out right. But is this the biblical view of our lives? In reality, the biblical view is that God is there at the beginning. God is there at the end. And God is there at every point in between. Our role is to identify God's active involvement at every stage. What happens to us is not the result of a mechanical turning of impersonal divine wheels. It's not fate. It's not kismet. It's not karma. And it's not luck. God himself is actively involved and at work in our lives. Honestly, friends, I'm of the conviction that Paul is not trying to tell us that whatever happens is good. No! Or that he's trying to tell us that suffering, evil, and tragedies are good in and of themselves. So then, what is Paul saying? Let's imagine that Paul is posting a sign over all the unexplained mysteries that have occurred or are still occurring in our earthly lives. The sign reads, Quiet, God at work. How is he at work? Well, maybe we're not always sure. But to what end? To good and not to evil. Friends, Paul had something that we all need a long-term perspective. You see, the danger for us is that we will judge the end by the beginning. In other words, judge what we cannot see by what we can see. And here's where Romans 8.28 can help us. When Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, the word that Paul uses for work together is actually one word in the Greek New Testament. And that word is where we get our English word synergy. Synergy is an interesting concept. Broadly applied, synergy is what happens when two or more elements are put together to form something entirely new that none of the individual elements could form separately. Picture an automobile factory. At one end, there's the raw materials and the many components, engine, chassis, wheels, windshields, seats, etc. And at the other end, a new car rolls out. In Romans 8.28, then, Paul is describing our own life experiences. God begins with the raw materials of life, some parts that seem to serve no good purpose, but through pressure and heat, these parts are bent and shaped and joined together. Over time, something beautiful rolls out, not by accident, but by divine design. Nothing is wasted in the process. This is how we must look at life, not judging the end by the beginning, but judging the beginning by the end. And here's the crux of the matter, friends. The end that God has in mind is conforming us to the image of his Son, Verse 29. You see, God has predestined us to a certain end, and that end is the good in Romans 8.28. God is committed to conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus, and whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus is good. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. I hope it's blessed and challenged you. And as promised, we'll close with an email where you may inquire about how to financially support A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. I love coming alongside those without a church home or those who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at FaithTalk1360.com. That's FaithTalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, we're broadcasting in 70 plus countries. Friends, please invest in the mission of A Word from the Word and help us become fully funded. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I am Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you,
0: email him at A Word from the Word at minister.com. That's A Word from the Word at minister.com.